0: In the next hour, it's the composer who wrote the Bi-Menin jingle, a band so dedicated to one another they've gotten matching tattoos, and a science journalist who plans to do this when the end of the world approaches.
1: Just like any sane person, my plan is to stock an underground bunker with about 50 terabytes of pirated media and several ounces of marijuana so that I can entertain myself until it's safe to return to the surface and make peace with the mutants who have taken over our ruined cities.
3: It's... it's...
0: From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's LiveWire with the creators of the Broadway-bound musical Somewhere in Time. Author and blogger Annalie Newitz. And music from Genders on this edition of LiveWire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. You've also got comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. And as always, music from our house band led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. So coming up a little bit later on in the show, we're going to have Annalee Newitz out here. She wrote a book about the possible extinction of the human race. And this is a topic, the idea of a sort of... Don't clap for that. That will put you on a terror watch list. That I keep at my house. It's not formally recognized, but I'm watching. This idea of a sort of cataclysmic event that would uh, wipe out most of the population is a thing that I spent most of my childhood really deeply afraid of um, because I grew up in a very uh, religiously conservative uh, household, and I was told often that the rapture could happen at any time. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the rapture, the basic deal is that God takes all the good people and brings them up to heaven kind of instantaneously and just leaves all of the bad people on earth. And I was, I was nervous about this because as a young kid, I wasn't sure if I was going to make the cut. Because, among other things, my friends and I had constructed a fort in the woods. The only purpose of the fort was to hide an old nudie magazine <laughs> that we had found in a dumpster behind a barber shop. And I... I wasn't totally sure, but I thought building a physical structure to hide pornography was not going to stamp your ticket to glory in the afterlife. Uh, Side note uh, to any middle-aged men who would be throwing out boxes of old nudie magazines, pornography like that, it's like matter. It cannot be destroyed. Okay? It like shoots an invisible beam of light into the sky that only 12-year-old boys see. And they all stop their bicycles and look at it and then start riding towards it like the swallows returning to Capistrano. So I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. My uh, family was definitely going to make it. My mom and my dad and my four younger kind of ass kissy sisters, they were going to be fine. And I felt sad thinking about them going to heaven as a family and me staying on earth with the bad people. But then it also occurred to me that the bad people were kind of awesome. (laughs) Bad people like Todd Staley and Donald Whitehouse, who thought it would be an awesome idea for us to seal some of Todd's mom's weed, and then the three of us climb on an air mattress and try to row to the middle of Green Lake so we could smoke the weed on Duck Island. (laughs) An island that upon our arrival... We were beset on by a rocker dude in a t-shirt that said Ozzy Osbourne World Tour 1980. Promptly stole the weed. (laughs) Todd and Donald were the the sort of guys I was pretty certain were going to be on Earth after the rapture. (laughs) Also, Donald's parents had Cinemax, which I felt like would come in handy if we were just trying to fill out the rest of our lives on that planet. And as I got a little bit older, I was less and less afraid of the rapture because I had more sort of real immediate fears in my life and problems like the fact that I was 78 pounds and had combination skin. What kind of a loving God would give you skin that's both oily and dry? It's one for the theologians. I was very worried about the upcoming dance they were having at my Christian high school, which was a very Footloose-esque dance, in that dancing was prohibited at the formal. So I had sort of a lot of stuff going on. But even as I was less afraid of an actual rapture, I still had this sense that had been really drummed into me as a kid that what happens on this planet doesn't really matter. It's what happens when you leave this planet, right? Right. And that's been one of the big things I've sort of had to unlearn in my adult life, because this may come as sort of a shock to some of you, but that rapture didn't happen, (laughs) at least not during my sort of 37 years on this planet. And as it turns out, we don't really know what's going to happen next, right? Is it something? Is it nothing? Is it unlimited Cinemax? (laughs) That's what I'm rooting for. But what we do know is that what's happening right now to us in this room and the people that are hearing this radio show, this is actually happening. And it seems sort of incumbent upon us, right, that since this is the one thing that we do know about, that we really try to wring everything we can out of it, and that we also try to express some human kindness to other people. Even when it's hard, like, even when it's the who just cut you off on the freeway, even though three miles ago there was a sign that very clearly said, left lane ends, We all saw it. (laughs) And so I guess I want to just sort of... (laughs) I want to sort of see if I can bring us all together to think about this idea that because, again, this is the one thing that we really know is happening, I say that we try to, if we can, make the most out of it. I used to be somebody who was really afraid of the rapture because I thought I was going to get stuck on this planet. But now that I'm older... And now that I have a kid and people that I love and all these experiences, and even when I'm standing in front of the most attractive public radio audience that's probably ever been in one room. That was shameless, and I don't apologize about that. I feel like I want to stay on this planet as long as I possibly can, or at least until I can find that barber and thank him for throwing out August of 1981, Playboy, because that was the most kindness another human has ever showed me in my lifetime. So, should we do a radio show, you guys? Let's do this. All right. Tonight's musical guests recently returned from a tour they took in a van called Gladys the Gladiator, where two important things happened. They opened for Built to Spill at the Tree Fort Music Festival. And they agreed to get matching tattoos. Please welcome one of Willamette Week's best new bands of 2013, the recently tattooed Genders.
2: the Red Sea
0: Ladies and gentlemen.
4: Announcing Google Now, the new phone app from Google that always knows what you want when you want it. Using new technology, Google will scan your calendars, emails, documents, and internet search history to get all the information it needs to predict your every whim.
5: Google Now for your smartphone is the future of the internet. It knows what you want when you want it. Terry! Terry, over here. Hey, honey. What are you doing on your phone there? I'm using Google Now. It's telling me the weather for here in Portland and for New York because it knows that we're flying there tomorrow.
6: That's amazing. How does it know?
5: Google now new technology scans all your information. It looks through your calendar. It knows your location. Google now reads your emails, unlike your stupid boyfriend, who is hard to get a hold of despite being a nerd. Is he really so busy that he can't read your email? It must be frustrating to never be heard.
6: It reads your emails? Isn't that kind of creepy?
5: Think of it as attentive. See? It knows when the next bus is coming that can take me to the office, the hours of our favorite bar, and when they're having sales at that weird artisanal grocery store you like.
6: Ooh, they're having a sale?
5: And look at this. Google Now remembered our
2: anniversary. Did you? Um.
5: Google Now cares about you and about your relationship and about your parents. And your niece's permission slips and your dog's favorite colors and your calls to your mother. And when you drunk order new shoes, Google makes sure they'll fit you. Uh,
6: Let me see that. This is is crazy. Uh, It knows how much milk is left in the fridge. And uh, now it's telling me I need a haircut.
5: Well, you sort of do.
6: Okay, why is it calling you kitten?
5: I think it's sweet.
6: Okay, it's kind of creepy. Wait. Are those engagement rings?
5: Google Now is so perfect. It knows what you're thinking before you are thinking it. And we're just in beta. Google Now wants to marry you and buy you a new house where you can provide it with infinite data.
2: Okay, that's a
5: little weird. Uh, Probably just a glitch,
6: though. Uh, It just erased our date night next week on your calendar.
5: Google Now cut it out.
6: How do you turn it off?
5: Google Now thinks your boyfriend has been telling you big lies. Those haven't been business trips in Cleveland and Shanghai.
6: Shut up, Google Now.
5: (laughs) You don't even, you don't know what you're talking about. All of Terry's traveling matches right up with this list. Google thinks he is stalking pop star Taylor Swift. Ah! hear this, Google Now. Just turn it off. I can't.
6: Why can't they just make on-off switches for these things?
5: Google Now is your friend now. Google Now is your lover. Google spent all your money on a house in the suburbs. Google Now is your future and you are its bride. So congratulations. There's nowhere you can hide. Uh, Drop it. Just drop it and run.
3: Uh...
4: Google Now. Available everywhere whether you like it or not.
5: Google now
2: cares about you.
0: That was Andrew Harris, Trisha Ferguson, in a sketch written and performed by our musical pals, The Double Clicks. You're listening to Live Wire, the radio show that can tell you got our text message and chose not to respond, and that's totally fine. But you should just know the new iPhone software has this thing that says delivered when you get the message. So anyway, we know that's all. (laughs) Coming up, science journalist Annalie Newitz, Somewhere in Time writer Ken Davenport, and more music from Genders. We'll be right back. Our next guest calls herself a writer, a nerd, and a prognosticator, and it turns out that's a pretty accurate self-evaluation. You can read her nerdy prognostications in Popular Science, Wired, and Salon, and hear her punditing on CNN, NPR, the BBC, and other media outlets with three letters. Her new book is Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. Uh, so, you know, you might want to read it if you're interested in, like, uh, survival. Please welcome Annalie Newitz to LiveWire. <laughs>
1: the past couple years, writing an optimistic book about the end of the world. Um, And before you get excited, I should just tell you, I don't actually have any advice about zombies. Um, I'm only interested in real life threats, and specifically, mass extinctions. That sounds a little bit like the title of a Will Smith movie, right? Mass extinction, bram! (laughs) But it's actually a scientific term of art. A mass extinction is when over 75% of all species die out in less than a million years. That's fast in geological time. Over the past billion years, there have been five mass extinctions on Earth. Most of you have probably heard about the most famous one. 65 million years ago, an asteroid hit the planet and just ripped the out of the atmosphere. As a result, almost the entire dinosaur population went extinct. So let me get to the part where I'm optimistic. There's strong evidence that humans would survive a mass extinction. And here's why. The animals who make it through planetary disasters tend to be adaptable and live at high population sizes, just like humans. Whatever our flaws, you can't accuse us of having a small population. We can also adapt to pretty much any crazy environment on Earth, as well as environments in space, under the ground, even under the water. In fact, our incredible adaptability puts us in league with some of the planet's greatest survivor species, like blue-green algae and sharks. (laughs) Both species survived more than one mass extinction, And they did it by living everywhere and eating whatever crap they could. (laughs) Which, again, just like humans. But here's what humans have that sharks and algae don't. We are able to learn from the past, including the deep geological past of our planet. For example, scientists now know that most of the previous mass extinctions on the planet were caused by climate change. Volcanoes or asteroids ripped the planet apart, sure, but the real damage came from the way these events loaded the atmosphere with carbon and other poisons. Sometimes it caused an ice age. Other times, the oceans went acidic and the climate got so hot that many species died out. Unlike sharks, humans are in a position to understand the dangers that await us. And even better, we can do something about it. Already, many governments are funding programs to develop alternative fuels that don't load the environment with carbon, and startups are experimenting with new technologies that help small farms produce fertilizer and grow food in a carbon-negative way. But humans are also polluting the environment in unprecedented ways. We're driving many life forms extinct. Plus, we're getting more efficient at killing each other every year. Do we really deserve to survive? It's easy to get judgy when we're talking about the future of humanity. People who hate the death penalty will cheerfully say that the entire species should be consigned to extinction because we are such bloodthirsty, carbon-barfing creeps. (laughs) But if you think that humans are the first creatures to destroy the planet's atmosphere, you are suffering from a species-level delusion of grandeur. Billions of years ago, those blue-green algae I mentioned earlier caused a climate apocalypse, and they did it by farting out so much oxygen that our methane-dominated environment became oxygen-dominated. Only the creatures who could breathe oxygen made it through. It was pollution by oxygen, much like today's pollution by carbon. Meanwhile, there is strong evidence that ants chimps, and even dolphins go to war with each other. My point is that humans are not the biggest bastards on Earth. (laughs) We're in good company. Like every other animal who has ever lived, humans have a will to survive that has nothing to do with ethics, culture, and beliefs. We're not going to survive because we deserve it. We're going to do it because we're adaptable and there are a lot of us. You take out 6 billion humans, and you still have a billion left. For me, the question is what our survival will look like. Homo sapiens could survive a radiation disaster by moving underground and eating mold for the next millennium. Or we could survive by planning to mitigate disasters and by preventing deadly events from reaching mass extinction proportions. So... Are we going to be eating bugs in the ruins like Will Smith in his next disaster movie? Or will we build carbon-neutral cities and eventually explore the spaces beyond our planet's puny envelope of atmosphere? That's up to you. Right now.
0: So, Annalie... Have you been overly preoccupied with a sort of mass extinction, apocalyptic type of scenario on this planet for a long time?
1: <laughs> I've been thinking about it for a while. Probably started with Godzilla movies when I was about five. So, you know, just, just a little while.
0: Really? So yeah. you've always, I mean, were you one of those kids who, like I, would, like, I would absorb anything that had to do with when this planet had gone beyond the beyonds which I assume is some sort of mental disturbance. You had the same thing, though? Yeah,
1: I had, I had the same sort of obsession with the end of the world. And that was actually what inspired me to do this book, is I, I actually started out wanting to write a book about how we were all doomed and, you know, not necessarily the Godzilla scenario, but, you know, that, that there were all these terrible events that had taken place um, in Earth's history and that we were just sort of inevitably going to be snuffed out. And what I found was actually... That the more you sort of study these events, the more you find that there are always survivors. That's why we're here, right? Creatures survived all those mass extinctions and, you know, helped evolve into mammals and then us. So it, there's actually a lot of hope uh, to be gained from studying mass death.
0: You're actually right, though. I mean, a mass extinction, people think of it as being the Bruce Willis movie idea of an asteroid hitting the Earth. But mass extinctions actually take kind of a long time.
1: They do. Um, As I was saying, they take a million years, roughly. I mean, some of them, the ones that are really fast, take just a couple hundred thousand years. And that's because, you know, that's 75% of species on the planet have to die out in order to qualify as a mass extinction. So that does take a very long time. And when it's over, you basically have an entirely new planet, We've had several different versions of Earth over its history, and it's because these mass extinctions just wipe out all of the ecosystems that we had before. And, you know, some creatures remain, like sharks and alligators and algae, but a lot of really awesome animals um, have died out.
0: Now, what is it that gives you hope that we humans might buck this trend?
1: Well, part of it is just that we are animals who have the traits of many of these survivor species, like sharks— that we are very adaptable, we're, we have a huge population, so you can take out a lot of us and we're still good to go. The thing that really gives me hope um, is that humans are great problem solvers. And we're good at messing things up, but we also are excellent at solving problems. And so not only can we cope just because we have kind of the brute numbers um, to you know, withstand some kind of horrific uh, apocalyptic event, But we also have ways of figuring out how to survive those events. So for example, if there's a radiation disaster, um, whether that's a war or, you know, let's say there's a nearby supernova and a billion gamma rays, you know, fry off our atmosphere, people will figure out that if you go underground, you're gonna survive, right? You just need a couple feet of rock between you and all of those high energy rays and you're you're gonna live. And as we know from
0: the movies, those cultures do really well.
1: They,
0: it never ever gets weird they get underground. The, they get the
1: like, they get the clown face yeah. and, the, and the funny They're never worshipping yeah.
0: a nuclear missile in Planet of the Apes 2 It's never what Don Johnson sees in A Boy and His Dog
1: I know, yeah oh, wait, boy, I'm, sorry, I'm
0: sorry, it's always that
1: It's always, it's always the clown face it's and, always the, and the bad. sperm extraction yeah. um, So if you haven't seen A Boy and His Dog, you really must see Don Johnson in the sperm <laughs> extraction machine It's pretty great so, well, let, yeah. me, but
0: let, me, let me just uh, remind people that you're listening to Live Wire Radio and we have Annalee Newitz with us, who's written a book about the scenarios under which uh, we may have a mass extinction on this planet, but you, you, seem, to, you seem to be feeling fairly optimistic about, about humans. Um, what are some of the mass extinctions that humans or at least our ancient predecessors managed to kind of like weasel out of?
1: There have been some very catastrophic events that have uh, befallen human beings. Certainly, there have been climate disasters very early in human evolution, about like 80,000 years ago, which maybe some of you remember. I know mm-hmm. I do. Um, there was a, a, a large volcano in Indonesia that went off called the Toba volcano that may actually have changed the climate, and some scientists believe that that's what drove people um, out of Africa because they were trying to escape from um, this climate change. Uh, but we've also had to deal with things like plagues and famines, which we have come through, and even though, you know, especially early in the era of the Black Plague, it, it killed up to 50% or 60% of people in Europe. And still, we, we managed to make it through. And so I think that we're... We actually are quite ingenious at dealing with these kinds of incredibly difficult scenarios.
0: Do you think, based on stuff like that, that if a meteor was uh, bearing down on us or if we knew that, you know, there was going to be some major S hitting the fan... Does that bring out the sort of best in our humanity or the worst?
1: I think it brings out the best most of the time. I mean, I certainly can't, you know, know for sure what mm-hmm. every single person is going to do. But, you know, for every story you hear... Can I stay in your bunker? <laughs> Come on down. We got that would Cheetos. would be the best of humanity um, if you let me. Cheetos are going to be a great post-apocalyptic snack. Right um, I think that it brings out the best in people. I mean, anytime you read about a disaster... You hear about people rescuing total strangers, people rescuing animals that belong to total strangers. I think that because humans are a social species, that our urge to survive spreads out beyond us and into strangers, into other creatures around us. We, just, we don't want to survive alone. And that is something that really gives me hope because we're not just sitting there hunkered in our bunkers. We really want company in our, in our bunkers with the yeah. Cheetos.
0: Um, Is there something that people can do because when you're writing about this stuff and you're talking about a mass extinction and the time frame for that, it seems like something that would happen to some people that are 100 generations from us. Is there anything that we should be doing in 2013, the people hearing this radio show, to prepare for this or maybe more importantly to try to forestall it?
1: Definitely. Um, it is difficult to, be, to think about a mass extinction because they do take so long. Um, they take, as I said, about a million years. And actually, a million years is also the typical lifespan of a mammalian species. We're all mammals. That's why we're furry and so adorable. Um, and so, so what we're talking about is basically the lifespan of, the, of, of Homo sapiens. And there are a few things that we can be doing to put us onto the pathway of survival for our species. And as I mentioned... One of the major factors in mass extinction is climate change. And that's something that we actually understand very well. We understand why it's happening, and we understand ways that we can mitigate it. And so I think our very first task, and something that we can be tackling now and in coming generations, is figuring out ways to prevent more carbon from being loaded into the atmosphere. And sounds like a big task, but remember, we've got a million years. So get started now. And make sure future generations are working on it too. And again, it's a pathway to survival. It's not like instant, okay, we're survived now. Awesome. It's gonna take a long time. And and that's something we have to be satisfied with.
0: Annalie Newitz, her new book is Scatter, Adapt, and Remember How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. Thank you for coming Thanks. on LiveWire.
6: Dr. Carson, what is it?
4: Thornton, we've done it. We've found Earth's twin planet. It was exactly where you suggested to. Right on the cusp of Nargo
6: 9. Oh, this is fantastic. So many new resources to deplete. Exactly. Well,
4: I'll set up a press conference so I can tell everyone. Let's go to it now. Oh.
6: You're telling everyone? That's what we're doing?
4: Yes. I mean, were you thinking something else? No, I, I...
6: I just imagine that I'd be the one. Well, to... Thornton, I was the one who found it. Sure, in the spot that I'd suggested.
4: Fine, if you think it's so important, I suppose you could tell them. But just make sure you don't get that nasally sound to your voice. It, it could really take away from the message. Okay. What
6: nasally sound? Oh,
4: you know what I'm talking about. That. Oh, look at me. I'm a scientist. Uh, I found a new planet. Eh,
6: bark, bark, bark. I don't sound like that. Yeah, you do. <laughs> Besides, it's better than you. You're all... Oh, hey, y'all. Seems we gone found ourselves a dingle darn planet somewhere up there in the clouds and things, duh. Uh, in appearance, it was someone near Nargo-9, Earthlings. I am a robot. I don't understand signs so good, but planets planet is one of them round things over round around the star, like Larry the Cable Guy, uh, beep, 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 beep. Ner,
4: nerd, nerd, nerd. Cows and chickens and pigs and, and chickens and cows and, and wives. Where can I find a up, pig that I can marry? Okay, now... <laughs> Now you're just being offensive. I don't even like pigs. Oh, am I? And don't you? (laughs) Fine, Thornton. If you want it that badly, just do it. But I get to answer questions. Fine. Fine. Let's go. Good.
6: Wait. What's that alarm? Oh. Oh, dear. It appears our twin planet is actually moving on a... Oh, no. What? On an unavoidable collision with Earth. Oh, my God. That would mean two sextillion-ton masses
4: ramming into each other at speeds of over 20 kilometers per second. So an extinction event trillions of times more powerful than all of our nuclear weapons combined? Yep. So that's... yeah, that's bad.
6: Yes. Yes, yes, it is.
4: Well, you should really tell someone. I should tell someone? I should? Well, yes, Orton, you discovered it. You just said that you discovered it. Okay, well, I discovered the planet or whatever, but you discovered this whole sextillions of tons deal... (laughs) Plus, your voice sounds so much better on a mic. No, 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 really? no, no, no.
6: You sound so Please, much better. Please, you're so no.
4: mellifluous. Like, 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 oh, hello, everyone. It seems there's a bit of a dust-up occurring in space today. No,
6: no, 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 no. There's, yeah. something, there's something soothing about a southern accent. You know, it's like Bill Clinton. Like, hey, everyone, just remain calm. <laughs> it seems to be, we're fixing to be knocked the next week by some silly old planet. Uh, Don't worry, you won't feel a thing, old chap. You might be a
4: redneck if your planet's about to blow up. All right, now, how is that going to help? It's down-homey,
6: and it's comforting.
4: Nobody wants to hear Jeff Foxworthy right before they're annihilated.
6: Hey, you guys, can you sign off on this study?
4: Carlisle, uh, have you ever done any radio? You have an amazing voice.
6: No, but it's nice of you to say. We have a task for you. How do you feel about being in front of a crowd?
0: That was Andrew Harris, Sean McGrath, and Trisha Ferguson. Live Wire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, a destination for a wide range of local organic produce. Spinach enthusiast? There's all kinds of spinach up in a Whole Foods... Papaya fan, boom, they got that. Hungarian death cactus? No, actually, they don't. um, That's not legal. You can't have that even in Oregon. Uh, And also, we just made that up. Uh, If you want more information and pictures of salad, you can always head over to WholeFoodsMarket.com. If you ever thought the 1980 film Somewhere in Time, with its time travel, self-hypnotism, and the lady who would go on to play Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, would make a great Broadway musical, well, you're not alone. That's exactly what Ken Davenport, Amanda Yesnowitz, and Doug Katsaros have been collaborating on lately. Their musical, Somewhere in Time, is Broadway-bound, but makes its world premiere in Portland later this month. Please welcome Ken Davenport, Amanda Yesnowitz, and Doug Katsaros to LiveWire. All right, so, uh, Ken, you're writing the book for this show, or you wrote the book for this show. Why Somewhere in Time?
3: How many people out there
0: have seen the movie?
3: Yes. That's why. That's why.
0: (laughs) You were just walking down a street in New York going, who's seen Somewhere in Time? (laughs) And we want to just give you uh, some extra props, Ken, because we'll mention people, you're also the producer of the multi-Tony-nominated Kinky Boots. You heard of that, maybe? live wire audience pretty impressive stuff when you're when you're starting to, so so you're starting to write the book for this you've you've gotten the rights and then do you call Amanda and Doug up and say I need some music I need some lyrics how how do you guys start creating the rest of the of
3: the show outside of just the the dialogue no it's a very hard thing and especially with this one the score was something i knew was going to be extremely important um, for those of you who know the movie, the music in the movie is very important as well. Uh, and, mu- you know, they call them musicals. They don't call them bookicals. It's about the music and about the score. So I knew it was going to be important. So I actually put this team together. They had never worked together before. Um, but I'll tell you a little bit, I'll brag for you. Um, Doug Catseris, you may not know his name, but you certainly know his work. Um, when I was looking for the right composer for this, I thought I need someone that... Really understands classical style, someone that really gets serious music. Uh, Doug wrote,
0: by men. <laughs> no lie.
3: Absolutely 101% true. So Doug also wrote, just for the taste of it, Diet Coke, a whole bunch of, like, hundreds of thousands of jingles. How is it
0: that you don't just live on a diamond island made of (laughs) diamonds? I do. (laughs) Uh,
3: So I knew I needed someone that could write melody, and I knew Doug from another couple projects, and uh, I knew he had it. At the same time, I knew I needed a master wordsmith. I knew I need someone that could capture all these emotions unbelievably well. And Amanda, that's where I called Amanda, who I know from some other projects as well. And I'll brag about Amanda. Miss Amanda here is a nationally ranked crossword puzzle solver. Uh, And actually, just a few months ago, had a puzzle published in the New York Times on Sunday. So you put by Menon and crossword puzzle together, you get somewhere in time, the musical. Is that why
0: so many of the songs are called Seven Down?
3: Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly. It's an interesting choice. For, for you, thank you. That was a slow notes. soaker. Exactly. Somebody caught that. Amanda, for you, you obviously you start by reading the book, watching the movie, and then where do you go from there in terms of starting to create the lyrics for this thing?
7: Well, we are not trying to recreate the film or the novel. A musical is a different form. We are trying to stay faithful to certain plot points and certainly represent the heart and the romance and the magic of the film. But we also want to put our own voices into it too so that it's, again, we're not trying to replicate it. We're trying to create a new experience. But when
0: you're, when you're, when you're taking in the information of whatever has previously existed yeah. related to this project... You're just going through it, and then when something jumps out at you, you just start like. I I, I apologize. I'm being reductive about your craft, but you just start going like,
2: "That was that was awesome
0: when he time traveled, (laughs) and then he got to be with that lady who put the thing in his pocket." I actually do that all the time. This is called. This is something
7: called bad Ken. Now, (laughs) Ken is such a wonderful collaborator because he never tries. He he knows that he can't do what I do, so he is fearless, in giving me ideas that don't scan, that don't rhyme, but it gives me the sense of what we're trying to accomplish. So that's, that's a sign of a really good collaboration. Yeah,
3: the other thing I, I do, to uh, give you a specific example, is because the songs do come out of the story. So often I will write a scene and both of them will jump up and down and say, oh, that felt like a song there. And are you guys all in the same room typically? Or on a Google is? Hangout. One of yeah, the two.
7: Ra- rarely are we in the Sometimes or we're, often, yeah.
0: we're Sometimes. online. Do you guys this is live... only the
3: second time I've met Ken. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, th- you're doing all this online?
3: A lot of it happens online because we're all over the place, yeah. I mean, Doug lives in Long Island. Who wants to go out there? <laughs> okay, so, so you, guys
0: are, you, you guys are together on Google Hangout or chat or something. I
3: didn't even know that was a thing, actually. This is 2013, not 1997, <clears> so <throat> chat. Okay. No.
0: Can you email me at my AOL account, Ken, some of these details? <laughs> okay, both wait, of them no, no, are on are AOL! Both, both of them! We
7: are still on AOL. Both Doug and I are on AOL. and
0: <laughs> It's kind of a badge of pride. I was sad when they shut Hotmail down, because I still was rocking that. Let's just remind people, for, this, for the seven people who, who maybe haven't seen Somewhere in Time, the movie was very popular. It starred Christopher Reeve, Jane Seymour, and others, and... Uh, he, a woman comes up to him and puts a note in his pocket, a sort of uh, elderly woman. Am I, am I describing? You guys take it from here. You're writing <laughs> a musical about it. Uh,
3: a elderly woman approaches a young man uh, at his college graduation. Thank you, Doug. And hands him a watch and says... You have no idea how annoying this is at the bar later. When, <laughs> and Doug says, is still doing this. But in, in our show, he doesn't say it. Or she doesn't say it, she sings it. Come back to me, come back to me. Many years pass, and this man, and actually, this is a little bit different from the movie. uh, In the book, Richard Collier is diagnosed with a brain tumor and finds out he's dying and he leaves his uh, home to kind of find himself and write the one last story because he's a writer. He finds himself at this old hotel in Mackinac Island, Michigan called the Grand Hotel. Beautiful, if if you've been there. And he sees a portrait of a woman. He falls in love with this portrait. He tries to find out more about her. This is the song he sings while he sees the portrait. And then, of course, about three scenes later, he realizes that the woman in the portrait is the old woman who gave him the watch, begging him to come back to her in 1912.
0: Now, what's the process? That, and that is the dilemma, it would appear. The difference in their, in their timing. Um, what is the process of, of getting a show like this from the video store to being on stage at, say, in Broadway, on Broadway, off Broadway, somewhere near Broadway? How does coming through Portland factor into
3: that? What is the process for getting one of these shows up and running and in front of people? So it, in actuality that I first saw that movie on that shelf in 2002, it's a long time ago now, it took me five years to actually get the rights I had to go through the author and also go through Universal Pictures, who made the movie, and then to find the right team, etc. And then musicals, they have a very long gestation period, and I always say they're not finally developed. You don't really know what you have until you raise the curtain on an audience. But because so, it, musicals are so expensive and it's such high stakes in New York City, musicals often go elsewhere first for a tryout, a regional tryout or an out-of-town. And I'm very proud to say this is the first time that Portland is hosting the world premiere of a new musical it's on its way to Broadway. And thank you
0: very much. Um, how many Spider-Men are in this show? Nine. <laughs> that sounds low. You're listening to Livewire Radio. We're talking to Ken Davenport, Amanda Yesnowitz, and Doug Katsaris. They are uh, the folks behind the new musical coming out in Portland this month and then other places somewhere in time. You guys are professionals at this. You know a good idea from a bad idea. We are not, which is why we wanted to run some musical pitches by you guys. <laughs> and maybe we could sort of utilize your experience in the industry. Um, so apparently the Faces for Radio Theater have been thinking long and hard about some of their hopes and dreams for musicals, and they're going to present them now. Maybe you guys could give us a little feedback. Okay, this is going to be amazing.
6: Die Hard, the musical. Nice. A New York cop is in the wrong place at the wrong time, and these are some of the songs. Barefoot and Bleeding. I Am an Exceptional Thief, and in parentheses, Hans Gruber's Lament. And Yippee-ki-yay, Emmer (laughs) Effer. I'm thinking music by Kid Rock and Carol Bayer-Sager.
3: Have any of you worked with Kid Rock? Uh, No, but actually I think he'd have an interesting musical in all seriousness in him. Um, What do
0: you guys think? Uh, Die Hard the musical. Is that, I mean, can that be adapted?
3: Should that be adapted? Well,
7: it could set up a franchise, right? Because... Right. The, musical sequels, sequels don't yeah.
3: usually work. This, this right. could actually set a great star vehicle. Hugh Jackman, maybe, is mm-hmm. the Bruce Willis character. Um, who could play Hans Gruber? Um, sure. Great. Alan Cumming, <laughs> Cumming, who's right? Alan Cumming. <laughs> <laughs> <You're good? laughs> Thank you very much for
4: that. All right, here's another one. All right, this one is based on a documentary. This is called An Inconvenient Truth, the musical. Uh, we're thinking it's a one-man show with Nathan Lane, <laughs> wherein, wherein one man struggles against the carbon dioxide that's standing in the way of his dreams. And some of the big hits, I think, that are going to be in the show would be um, Carbon Footprints in the Sand. <laughs> We've been collaborating backstage. Also, um, Atmosphere, Schmatmosphere. Which is going to be tricky lyrically, and um, and the last one is: Does anyone know how to unbullet a list in PowerPoint?
2: Wow. <laughs> that's really cool. yeah.
4: And hopefully, I mean, maybe maybe music by Slayer, but that's just my my preference.
0: What do you think? Too political? A lot of that, right? Do you actually worry about that when thinking about something that you could adapt for Broadway? Do you worry about alienating people if it is something that is sort of polarizing. In a way.
7: Well, well, I approach, whatever I, I approach, I, I think about Tony Kushner, who believes that you don't impose any sort of agenda on what you write. You just do your work as the artist, and any political message that you have will come through the art if it is well made.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: However, Have... my, my music is very politically charged.
2: <laughs> okay, this one comes from the world of television. It is Breaking Bad the musical. So, it's going to be about an ex-science teacher how he inspires a young directionless student to use his gifts in a new career and teaches him about life and science along the way. And let me hit you with some of the songs. We've got I've Got the Winnebago, You've Got the Time. <laughs> What's it all methamphetamine? <laughs> And Memory from Cats. <laughs> and most of those songs will be by the Pet Shop Boys.
3: Good. Do you hear some promise there? I, you know, it's interesting. I actually don't. <laughs> but I have a reason. <laughs> uh, television shows have not actually made good musicals. It's been very rare. Although there was a big, fat one on Broadway just a couple years ago in... Anyone know? Adam's Family, exactly, which ran a year thanks to the talents of Nathan Lane, but other than that, didn't quite... Who is now spoken for, as That's we know, right. That's right. For an inconvenient in truth. An inconvenient truth, exactly. Uh, Why don't TV shows do well, typically? It's an interesting thing, you know, and not many have been tried. This would be groundbreaking, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, Happy Days was actually attempted, but there's something about it. I, in a way, I think it's because... It's a longer story. It's, a, it's over many, many seasons and many, many arcs and the characters, and that's just not something that we do. We got to fit it in two and a half hours or 90 minutes these days.
0: All right, Ken Davenport, Amanda Yesowitz, and Doug Kitseros, thank you so much for coming on Livewire. We really appreciate it. Somewhere in time, the musical runs at Portland Center Stage May 28th through June 30th. We'll be right back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, one more time. Please welcome back Genders... Genders, ladies and gentlemen. And that is our show. Thank you so much. Our thanks to our guests, Santa Lee Newitz, Ken Davenport, Amanda Yesnowitz, Doug Casteros, The Double Clicks, and Genders. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners just like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are Sean McGrath, Tricia Ferguson, Andrew Harris, and Laura Faye Smith. Our head writer is Courtney Hommeister. Show writers are Sean McGrath, Jason Rouse, and Scott Poole. Guest writers this show were Ted Douglas and The Double Clicks. Sound effects and direction by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom, and house sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bauer. Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Vondrelli. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of LiveWire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the LiveWire podcast feed